This episode contains content and language not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Statements made by sources in the Lawless Files do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Lawless Files or Leadhound Publishing, LLC. All names presented in the Lawless Files should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. A few weeks ago, attorney Steven Snodgrass, along with his former client Josh Kieser, released a book about the Michelle Lawless murder. The title of the book is The Murder of Angela Michelle Lawless, An Honest Sheriff and the Exoneration of an Innocent Man. It's a comprehensive look at the case, particularly from Josh's perspective, as he fought against a wrongful conviction. There are details in the book that I did not know, primarily because the information was contained in documents I didn't have access to particularly from the private investigator in the case, Jim Solens. But if you're into this case, I encourage you to read the book. It complements the work I've done here on The Lawless Files, and it presents a few things kind of differently than what I have. Much of it overlaps what you've already learned here on The Lawless Files, but there are a lot of new pieces, and this episode will concentrate on one of those pieces. We're going to talk about an alleged threat that was made on Josh's life while he was in prison. This is a detail in the book that I did know about, but I haven't reported on. Josh had his reasons for not wanting to release it just yet, and he has his reasons for releasing it now. But as we go through this episode, a theme that you'll be hearing about is priorities. Since Michelle Lawless died on November 8th, 1992, Only one person in a position of authority has truly made Michelle Lawless a priority. That person is former Sheriff Rick Walter. And that person was voted out of office, replaced by the first man to bungle the investigation into Michelle's murder. So let me rephrase that. Voters elected to replace the first officer to make Michelle Lawless a priority with the first officer who failed to do so. Now, I know that there's more issues out there than just Michelle Lawless's case, but this is a fact that really can't be denied. Walter has since lost two elections to West Jury after previously beating him. Walter is now the police chief of Scott City. It's been 16 months now since former prosecutor Amanda Ash asked the Missouri Highway Patrol and the Missouri Attorney General's Office to intervene in the Lawless investigation. So Ash made that decision as the Lawless Files episodes were dropping and new information was coming out for the first time publicly as we began to expose the conflicts of interest regarding the current sheriff, Wes Jury, and his relationship with former Sheriff Bill Farrell, who led the original investigation. I sent pointed questions to Ash. I was asking about these conflicts and why the public should have confidence in local law enforcement to continue the investigation. She didn't grant an interview and didn't answer those questions specifically, but she did put out a public statement saying that she was handing the investigation over to the state of Missouri. And that meant the Missouri Highway Patrol Division of Drug and Crime Control, as well as the cold case unit of the Missouri Attorney General's Office. Again, 16 months have passed since the case files were handed over. Reading between the lines, I get the distinct impression that the AG's cold case unit is following a 30-year trend here by also not making Michelle Lawless a priority. I really never had much faith in the Missouri Highway Patrol's DDCC unit, 
that they would truly investigate this case. You know, they're the division that's responsible for investigating police officers for wrongdoing. And I, I don't think they have a strong reputation there uh, as far as holding other officers accountable. So to look at this case, to look at Michelle's murder, that would mean kind of looking critically at current and former law enforcement officers, including the sheriff, who was the secretary and treasurer for the SEMO Drug Task Force for more than a decade. So I don't think that they're keen to, to do that examination. But I really hope the AG's cold case unit would be different. And as I've pointed out before, both the AG's office and the Highway Patrol contributed significantly to the wrongful conviction of Josh Keezer. I do mean significantly. An attorney general office investigation that would come with new charges would also mean recognizing in an official capacity that former AG prosecutor Kenny Holshaw failed in his duties as a prosecutor. As for the new investigation that's going on, I haven't heard much. Missouri Highway Patrol has digitized the case files as requested by Ash, according to current prosecutor Don Cobb. If you recall, the arrangement of the files was a reason held up by Ash as why she really wasn't able to dive into the investigation. So she asked them to make them all digital so she could search them and go through them. Ash did the right thing by doing what she did and handing this case over to the state. I mean, it was the right move. But the honest assessment is that Ash did not make Michelle Lawless a priority either. I mean, her actions show that she was hoping to add resources that might be able to help bring her a case that she could go prosecute. But again, that effort has since proved fruitless. Ash was narrowly defeated in an election last year, replaced by Don Cobb in January. Again, one more time, it's been 16 months since the case files have been in the hands of state officials. During that time, I've continued my investigation and I've uncovered new information. I interviewed a man who said he saw Michelle and one of the Abbott twins in the same place when he was a child. I passed that information along and I feel like the source is a credible source. I also received a, a photo of Bill Farrell out in public with a person who lied about Josh Keezer on the stand in 1994. I passed that along too. I never heard back. Frankly, I wonder if the current investigators even have enough context to understand why these pieces of information are relevant. One reason I haven't gone public with some of my new information is because Josh, as well as Cobb, have convinced me it might hurt the investigation to release it publicly. But the obvious question is, what investigation? I've been hinting on social media for quite some time now that things were going on behind the scenes, and that's absolutely true. And one of those things is what we're going to talk about here in a minute with Josh about this alleged threat on his life while he was in prison. Other things are brewing that I just simply can't talk about. Um, one of those things I hope kind of breaks here in the next couple of weeks. It's not anything as far as charges coming or any of that nature, but, but something that could move the case forward. There's other major, major developments that I just simply can't talk about. I wish things would move faster and so you, you know everyone can know what's going on, but I can't betray that trust. But the bottom line is, we've kind of wasted 16 months here. The passing of the case files to the Highway Patrol and the AG's office has been a bust. All we have to show for the prosecutor handing over these case files is the digitization of the copies, which, by the way, if you recall, may be incomplete. Original papers 
were found blowing in the Schnooks parking lot in Cape Girardeau. So who knows how many of those files actually got into a digital form. But I do hold out some hope. We will see. We've been down this road before. You know, Cobb's only been in the office since January, and I know his docket's full. Every time I call him for a comment on other stories, he's on court. I mean, the man's been busy doing the work for the citizens of Scott County. I get it. But the question becomes the same for him as it was for Ash. How will such a busy public official, one who is resource-strapped, but ultimately the most important voice in this case, figure out a way to make Michelle a priority when so many have not been able to do so? When I know the answer to that question, I'll make sure to pass it along here. Before we get into this new interview with Josh, I want to reiterate a point. And this is opinion, conjecture, it's analysis, whatever you want to call it. But I believe the injustice inflicted upon Josh Keezer is directly related to the reasons why Michelle's case is unsolved. When I was working at the newspaper full-time, before I truly understood the layers of this case, I saw it as two cases. I saw on this side Michelle's murder, and I saw on that side Josh's exoneration. It was, okay, now that Josh has been exonerated and eliminated, now the investigation on the real killers can begin. But I've since realized that one story doesn't begin where the other one ends. What I've come to realize is Michelle's murder was not solved because Josh was railroaded. I believe Josh was railroaded for the purpose of hiding the truth. The details of the investigation show that investigators locked into a narrative about Josh with no evidence, while ignoring evidence that led to other suspects. They even ignored the instincts of their chief deputy, who was removed from the case. And that was even before Josh was pulled into this nightmare. Remember, jailhouse informants, including a man charged with first-degree murder, were given deals. Some of them were told what to say, at least according to them later. Others tried to recant, but faced threats of further charges if they did so. So this point, this idea that the wrongful conviction was not a coincidence or a mistake, is critically important for the public to consider when thinking about Josh. Josh has believed this for a long, long time because he's had access to private investigators' files. He knows the contents of sworn testimony in his own exoneration case. He knows that Bill Farrell never tried to interview him. He knows Bill Farrell never had any interest in finding the truth about where Josh was that night. So Josh knew all of this stuff, and he tried convincing me in 2017 that he was intentionally framed, and I didn't believe him. But I did promise I'd look into it. And since that time, I've come to learn so much more. Operation Speedbump, Tom Beardsley, Taco Mancillas, meetings and phone calls between Farrell and Williams, Glenn Farrell's character letter from Bill Farrell, the Judge Briggs family cocaine ring in Sykeston, Norm Lambert's death, anonymous sources. It goes on and on and on and on. So, to me, this is not a story about Josh and a separate story about Michelle. Josh is the catalyst of the cover-up that buried Michelle's truth. So Josh carried his personal truth with him into the valley of maximum security prison. Michelle carried hers to her grave. Meanwhile, Michelle's likely killers were making road trips 
to sunny San Bernardino, California, to bring large quantities of methamphetamine back home to Scott County. An unsolved case posed a big risk to the real killers back in November of 1992. As long as the murder was unsolved, they were vulnerable. And if they could pin it on someone, that risk would be greatly reduced. Once Josh was convicted, Michelle's killers and those who were protecting them had to know that some risk remained with Josh still being alive and in prison. Josh represented a risk from the time he was arrested on a bogus assault warrant in March 1993 until today as he's discussing the details of his new book. It's only through Josh's lens that we begin to see the truth buried in the cemetery behind Unity Baptist Church in Benton, Missouri. It's through this living and breathing risk that we begin to understand the secrets Michelle took with her. And this risk is motivated to expose every detail of truth he can get his hands on. All of this is to say that when we talk about the two primary victims, there is no priority of Josh over Michelle or Michelle over Josh. Josh's story is Michelle's story. Josh's truth is Michelle's truth. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. I went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door, and uh, that's when we saw Michelle. So Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, Maybe not at any time. said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. I didn't take the split second. I said, huh, that's not Mark. I said, that's Matt. Mark Abbott or Matt Abbott or Vampire or Fred. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. At the right price. He said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He said, it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good Paychecks money. from a bullshit They job. never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. All right, so, Josh, uh, Thanks for joining the Lawless Files. Again, we've had many conversations. You've been on the podcast many times, and we're glad to have you here today. So it's uh, the, your, your book, which is titled The Murder of Angela Michelle Lawless, an Honest Sheriff, and the Exoneration of an Innocent Man. It's been out a week now, and so we're here to kind of talk about some of the things in the book. Um, obviously, Josh, you played a huge role in this book. It's co-authored by Steve Snodgrass, who is your attorney, and and he couldn't be with us today for some from, for some health issues, um, but obviously you had a big role in providing a lot of context and per- personal information in this book. So I wanted to talk to you today about some of the things that were in the book, but before we get into some of that, um, could you just big picture, like from your standpoint, what do you hope in this book accomplishes? Yeah, the goal, the intent, the purpose of the book. It's pretty easily stated for me. It starts out with um, getting justice for Angela Michelle Wallace. Um, the goal, the the primary purpose of the book, um, the reason why Michelle's photo is on the cover, 
the reason why the, the book is titled after her and not after me, uh, that's all intentional. It's to draw attention to the primary victim in this case and to instigate justice for her. Um, on top of that, it, it naturally, um, I'm hoping that it informs people on my life, the important role that my faith played in bringing me through this. Um, the way I describe my faith is that um, forgiveness in Christ has both saved my life and the lives of my enemies. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that, that 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 message gets out. So, I mean, in, 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 in many ways, um, as you know, Bob, and as anybody who has read the book now knows, the uh, secret that's, you know, it hasn't been a secret amongst us, but for all my haters on the Lawless Files discussion group, um, the people that's talking coffee shops and, you know, whisper in their private conversations or have had the audacity like Kenny Holstoff over the years to um, act as if he's representing the Lawless family. What the book reveals is that hasn't been Kenny Holstoff. That hasn't been West Drury. That hasn't been Bill Farrell. That's me. What gets re revealed in the book by um, Michelle's sister's endorsement by you know me introducing my attorney to uh, Michelle's sister and mother and, and Jason Lawless was invited to that meeting as well but he had something else um, going on that day look we understand that what happened to me right and what happened to Michelle is completely different but you know through 30 years of pain and suffering and struggle and healing and you know growing and maturity we we've come to a place to where we really have begun to understand each other you know as we've kind of talked about before josh uh the injustice that happened to you is a compounded injustice that happens to the lawless family and so mm -hmm. that's what people need to understand when 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 my haters or my detractors say, well, Josh is making it about him. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I never voluntarily got involved in this at all. I was involuntarily snatched from my life and forced to participate in this process. The moment I got exonerated, declared innocent and released from prison, I could have closed this chapter, walked completely away and never said the name Michelle Lawless or Scott County or anything again. Um, but what I've chose to do is to um, be an avatar for Michelle. Um, the way I see it is her victimizers also victimized me. And the victimizers of the Lawless family victimized my family. My mother went through alcoholic dementia. My father um, suffered mentally. Um, and emotionally for what happened to me wasn't really able to recover in certain ways. Uh, he felt betrayed by the um, United States government um, for what they did to me uh, because he, he viewed that he, he laid his life down for his country and then his country failed him when he needed them to protect his son. Uh, 
but all that being said, the the unfortunate difference between myself and Michelle is that she's dead. Right. And I'm not. And for whatever reason, God made me the way that he made me. And within that making, there is no give up. Right. So, so I can't give up on so, her. So the so book is about that. Exactly. So, uh, you know, again, I don't want to belabor the point, but for, for those, um, you know, who, who are questioning uh, motives or, or whatever, the, the fact of the matter is, is there's really in the last, I don't know, decade or so, there's really been no more um, better way to get movement in the case than by then through media, through stories, keeping headlines out there. We had the podcast. Um, we're still kind of working on it behind the scenes. Um, this is obviously a new episode we're doing here, but your book keeps the story in the headlines. Mm -hmm. It keeps the pressure on. It, it reveals new things. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I hope it has the, uh, the, the side effect of, you know, like I said, just keeping pressure on, not letting people get away with forgetting about it um you know and 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 those types of things so well what the book also does bob is it transfers responsibility um to where it needed to be the entire time um the response the risk the responsibility for this case now solely rests on scott county citizens they, they we've done our part as far as informing people about what happened um, anybody who's read the book knows. I mean, no one outside of myself knows more about this, the entire story um, than you. And you admit in your endorsement and, you know, you, you, you've said you've been outspoken about it, that there are things in the book that you didn't know. And there are little details that you weren't aware of. But we, uh, I will say this, though. Um, for listeners of the Lawless Files, is that Bob has been aware of a lot of things that we haven't publicly spoken about that are actually mentioned in the book. Um, Bob played a, a significant role in um, bridging the gap and and in um, servicing the healing between myself and Valerie Lawless. Um, there's a lot that happens in the background that the listeners of the lawless files and the people who follow this case know nothing about, you know, and, and quite frankly, you know, I, you know, there was a commenter on the lawless files discussion group that, that accused me of being full of hate. Um, but, you know, unless you've, it's not just about walking in the shoes, where are the fatigues I've been, I've been wearing? Cause you know, I, I wish it was just shoes that you can walk in because that you can go on a, a, you know, a morning walk in right. shoes, right? But where the fatigues go to the go to go to the war, fight right. the war yep. that I've been fighting for three decades. And you know, just like I just said a minute ago, like the listeners, the people who follow this, don't know what's going on in the background. Believe me, Bob knows all of it that I've been going through. One of the reasons why he's so well informed, or maybe even the reason why he's so well informed on this case throughout the years is because I communicate pretty much everything that I learn to him. The only times that I haven't is when a source is specifically asked 
to remain anonymous because it, you know you you want to earn their trust. And several of the sources that I've had over the years that started out like that through earning their trust, I was able to then pass them on to Bob. And uh, you know a lot of the information that um, the Lawless Files brings out is through the through that source contact. Uh, so. You know, I, I, I really, I, I want people to understand, I, I have no interest in being understood as hateful. Um, I'm sorry that people feel that way, but simultaneously, um, I don't really care. Like, I want people to not think me hateful, but if you think I'm hateful because I'm fighting for a murdered girl, if you think I'm hateful because I take it a little bit personal or a lot personal that this case traumatized my mother to the point of multiple suicide attempts. If you think that I can, I can come across a bit edgy after having met with and embraced and seen the tears of Esther Lawless, then maybe you need to, you know, put a different perspective on how you see me. And along those same lines, Josh, because we have talked so much, for those who think that this is like some sort of joyride book tour, it's it's clearly not. This is a situation where you have these conversations, you dredge up these memories and all of these thoughts and you have to like, it, it just takes you in a very, very, so from my perspective, you're taking yourself through hell to tell this story, to be honest. And so I want people to understand that um about you are you edgy yes do you you know do you take it personally yes are you passionate yes but it's also a a, a just it's an it's more than an emotional journey it's like you say the fatigues it's it's a psychological war that you're having to walk through to tell this story and get the record right and tell tell you know what you were going through in prison or what you were going through as a as a, a youngster when the, all this was going on. So I want to just say that I appreciate that you're willing to do that. Um, I appreciate that you're willing to tell this story to keep the story alive. And I want people to understand that part of it, that it's just not easy. It's not just Josh just out here trying to to write a book. So So thank you for that. You know, it, it's my odyssey, it's my journey, it's my war, and I, I genuinely hope that um, we get a victory soon. That's what um, we're all so, hoping for, Josh. You know, for, for those of us who've, who have uh, kind of joined the fight, we're all hoping for that. Man, we're hoping for that so much. So I want to talk a little bit uh, about some of the you kind of broke news in the book. Um, as you said, stuff that I might have known about. Um, but you are holding on to for certain timing reasons and so forth. One of the big ones that I wanted to talk to you about is Gordon Evans. Mm. Um, Gordon Evans, and this wasn't a huge part of the book, but Gordon Evans was in prison with you and came to you one day with some really, what I consider explosive information. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. So Gordon Evans is a Scott County man that in the, um, in the nineties, he murdered a young woman, a 17-year-old young woman. Okay, I'm going to jump in here and give you a little bit of background about this case. 
Gordon Evans shot 17-year-old Amy Morningstar in the head with a shotgun. Morningstar was shot on a Sunday night, but died Monday, November 28, 1994, in a hospital from her wounds. Morningstar was staying at Evans' home with he and Evans' wife in Scott City. It was never made public in news reports why Morningstar was staying with the Evanses. Evans, who was 26 years old at the time of the killing, claimed in court and in different appeals that he killed Morningstar accidentally while cleaning his gun, although a witness came forward to dispute that. Evans was originally charged with first-degree murder. In exchange for a guilty plea, that charge was lowered to second-degree murder. The reason given by Christy Baker Neal was because the state could find no motive in the case. Evans also pleaded guilty to possession of cocaine, which was connected to an arrest two years prior. In court, Evans was sentenced to two life sentences. Evans appealed his sentence. He said he agreed to a plea bargain that he never got. According to previous reporting by the Southeast Missourian, court records show that misunderstandings and errors by a judge and prosecutor extended the appeals process. Evans told the court that he believed he was pleading to a charge of second-degree murder and that his charge of armed criminal action was going to be tossed and that the prosecutor was not going to recommend a sentence, which she did do. Evans was given two life sentences. According to reporting by the Southeast Missourian, Evans' sister, in talking about Baker Neal, the prosecutor, said, quote, If she would have stuck to her plea bargain... We wouldn't be coming back here all these times. My brother should be doing time for the manslaughter, but not what he was given. Unquote. Gordon was released from prison within the last year, meaning he served roughly 28 years. Um, Gordon and I knew each other. We had been locked up for many years together since the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. So, but this whole time that I knew Gordon, I didn't know that he was from the Scott County area. I had no clue. Mm. I didn't know. And I, you know, I, 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 we knew some of the same people. Um, we worked in some of the same locations sometimes, you know? Um, so, I mean, yeah, we were familiar with each other. Um, we were on speaking terms, but that's about it. So that the listeners can understand this, this isn't, Josh Keezer saying this is something that he knows. This is me saying this is what I was told. In 2005, I was in um, administrative segregation in the New Jefferson City Correctional Center. Uh, I was in segregation at that time because a cellmate that I had had planted a razor blade um, and uh, near my, you know, in our, in our bunk, and then had told the guards that it was mine, because rather than having a grown man conversation with me, and just asking me to find another cell, or, you know, having a conversation and working something out like men, he decided to plant evidence on me and send me to the hole. It's like the little microcosm of my life, um, just another thing that somebody did unjustly to me. But while I'm in ADSEG, in ADSEG, like I pointed out, we had what's called the rec cages. So the rec cages were a row of cages, like literally like a chain link fence, right, that, that surrounded an entire enclosure, uh, multiple enclosures. 
and they would put one cell in each cage. So sometimes both cellmates would come out and they'd be in the same cage. My cellmate didn't go out to the cages. And when they put us out this specific day, it just so happened that the only two guys that went out was myself and Gordon. So they put Gordon in a cage right next to me. Well, at this point, you know, I, I worked out a lot when I was in prison and I didn't have access to weights clearly because I'm in ADSEG. So I did push-ups, and it would, it would just be cathartic for me to go out and just concentrate on my, on my physical and my mental well-being when I was out there. So we're out there and I'm, and I'm not even trying to engage. So I'm, I'm doing push-ups and I hear him start talking. And, you know, I, yeah, you know, like, look, a lot of guys in there knew about my case, right? Like my case was covered in the media during, during the nineties when, you know, when, when they sent me in. So there was, I'd, I'd hear guys say, you know, Hey man, that Michelle Lawless or Scott County or something like that. And then I would, I would just ignore them. I was like, I'm not trying to talk about it. Um, I'm not trying to believe that you have any information about it. So just leave me alone. So let me do my let me do my time, however long this is going to have to be for me, whether or not I get out tomorrow or I I leave here in a box, like whatever it is, just let me do my time. So I'm I'm doing my pushups. I'm ignoring him. I'm listening to him mention Scott County, Michelle Lawless, Bill Farrell. It's like like white noise. But then he said a name that caught my attention. And I'm still reluctant to say that name uh, in this interview, so I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry, listeners. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. Um, Bob knows the name. And it caught my attention because it wasn't a common name in, in, in the news. So when, when he said it, I stood up. And I said, excuse me, um, would you like to repeat yourself? I said something along those lines, right? Or I, I might have said, what the did you just say? I can't remember exactly how I put it, but it was basically, you need to say again what you just said, right? Because suddenly things are starting, you know, my memory kicked in because this is within minutes. And I'm like, did he just say this? And did he just say this? And Right. Well, he he begins to talk and tell me that when he was in um, the Scott County Jail in the mid 90s, that his brother visited him while he was in the county jail. And in the old county jail, when they had visits, right, basically they throw you in a room and they had like these like like little windows you could look through and then they had holes like you know uh there there wasn't a phone there wasn't none of that you know at that point it was a very it was very very archaic it was very old world um so you had the ability to have a conversation very up close to the glass and no one else would hear it right um it would be just between you and the person And Gordon said his brother visited him while he was in and told him that he had been approached um, 
by by two men and that one of them was former sheriff bill farrell and that bill farrell had offered gordon evans a thousand dollars if when he ran across me in prison because gordon already been convicted if when gordon ran across me in prison he would stab me in prison. That means that according to what Gordon Evans told me, Bill Farrell attempted to put a contract hit on my life following my conviction. Farrell then told her that she would help him and that if she did not, that he would take her son that being me and she would never see him again bill farrell attempted to put a contract hit on my life following my conviction and then i had gordon um, i asked him if he would be willing to type it up and to sign it and date it and he said he would do that when he got access to um, you know, a typewriter because we were in AdSec at that time. So you know, I get out of AdSec, right? And he gave it to me. I've got a copy of it. I've seen it. Yeah. You know, it's and that's a copy. It's a copy. Yeah. It's I don't, it's it's not an original. He gave me a copy. He signed but, it and he gave me a copy. Um, and I his signature's on it, and I have a um, sample. Uh, I've been given a sample of, of his signature um, in um, that's not related to the um, affidavit, whatever you'd want to call it. Um, statement. Um, the typewritten statement and the signatures match. You've seen that, Bob. Yep. Right. It, it, it's, it, this, this, is, this isn't a signature that requires a lot of guessing games. Um, it's a, there, are, there are clear identifiers that it is Gordon Evans' signature. Now, the listener might be wondering, well, if Josh knew about this in 2005, why didn't it get brought up when he was going through his exoneration phase? And the only answer I have for that is the other name. What big, my concern has always yes. been has been Bill Farrell's name. Right, and to piggyback on that a little bit, that doesn't really go to prove your innocence either. I mean, it's not that that was needed uh, for your exoneration. Um, no, it's a separate case. And that's also, so this is a separate case. Yeah. My lawyers were brought on, right, to fight an incredible fight, right? We couldn't just bring anything in, right? Right. We had, we had to stay laser focused. We had to keep our eyes on the prize and accomplish the goal. And that was to prove that I was innocent. And we accomplished that in historic fashion. I became the first man in the history of the state of Missouri to be given a Joe Amron innocence ruling. And I am forever, forever grateful um, to my attorneys and to Judge Richard Callahan for that. Um, but this specific issue regarding the contract that was offered on my life, that it, it didn't revolve around the Michelle Lawless um, murder now ultimately was 
the motive for putting a contract hit on my life related to the Michelle Lawless murder? I believe it was. I believe personally that it was, you know, um, if what Gordon told me then that he's denying now. Um, but yeah, I got the typewritten statement and you've seen it. Um, Amanda Ash has seen it, former prosecutor, Scott County. Um, Amanda Ash has seen it. Um, a current prosecutor, Don Cobb, has seen it. Uh, Attorney Missouri Attorney General Kevin Zellner has seen it. This isn't a secret out there. Well, I mean, it was for the masses uh, until now, until the book. I'll say this here. Gordon Evans did nothing wrong regarding Josh Keezer. He didn't, to my knowledge, ever try to stab me, um, ever try to kill me, um, ever try to take my life. To my knowledge, Gordon Evans never followed through on what he says was offered to him for the thousand dollars. You know, he he puts in his um, um, statement that. You know, that's just not something that he wanted to do. Right. So this is not a Gordon Evans thing. Right. Right. When you, when when when, <clears throat> when your listeners hear this and, and I know that Gordon Evans, he doesn't believe me on this. Right. His family doesn't believe me on this or they're so terrified of what Bill Farrell will do to them. If they just tell the truth. Um, but they, th this is not about Gordon. And this is not about the other name. Well, and, and Amanda yeah. Ash, Don Cobb, and Kevin Zellner all know the other name. So I'm not, it's just me not releasing it to the listeners. But a lot of people know the other name. This is not about them. This is about, Bob, so we can clarify, and I think you agree. This is about an elected law enforcement officer, the sheriff in charge of the Michelle Lawless murder investigation. And at that time, conviction attempted to hire a convicted woman killer to kill a man that he knew was innocent. Well, let's think about the context that we've heard in the lawless files also. And that is that he took Tom Beardsley off the case. He did not give Mark Abbott a, uh, a polygraph. Mm -hmm. um, he, he and his, his deputy, Brenda Shivitz, uh, lied about evidence that that was Brady material that they did not hand over to the defense. Yes. Um, we we know from investigative documents from uh, investigators, private investigators, that there was a visit with uh, Mark Abbott, Matt Abbott's father, to uh, Robert Mancilla's taco. They went together to, to find out what happened to this weapon. There are just a lot of things that have happened over the course of the years that make Bill Farrell's behavior very suspicious and very targeted towards you. That's not even to mention what he told your mother um, that you talked about uh, on one of our episodes about, you know, basically a threat that she was going to take you away from her. So there's there's a lot of history and background and context here that makes this more than just some half-cocked, you know, theory. Just the yeah. fact that you had the 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 foresight and the intent, you know, and and got that typed and dated and signed, 
um, it also adds credibility to at least this claim that you're, I mean, you're, you're, this is not something you're making up. This is not a vindictive type of thing. Mm-mm. There, there's, you've actually got some evidence that at least, at least this was said to you. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and like I said, I've approached, um, while Gordon Evans was still in prison, um, I found a way to communicate to his sister on multiple occasions, like that, look, I'm not making this about Gordon, right? I'm not making this about him. Um, I don't want, I, I don't want to just bring this up on the lawless files. I would rather give him the opportunity um, because there, you know, there were, and there still are um, law enforcement and prosecutors that are interested in this. So it was like, I just, I want to give him an opportunity to meet with these people, to speak with these people, and to just say what he said to me. Right? I'm not asking him to change anything. I'm not asking him to say anything that Josh Keezer wants Gordon Evans to say. This is not, I, I didn't bring this information to Gordon and then he regurgitated it to me. This is me minding my own business in a wreck cage in 2005 doing push-ups trying to tend to myself therapeutically while I'm locked up as an innocent man and locked up within my lockup as a compounded innocent man because I'm wrongly accused of this razor blade that I'm, I found myself in ADSEG for. So I'm quite literally just trying to mind my own business and space when he told me this. And my, my whole position the whole time was just say, what you said to me, right? Now, here's the thing. I have a source that has told me that family members have confirmed that it happened, that, the, that you know, the, they were contacted. And they're like, oh, yeah, we know why, um, or I know that the person said, I know why Josh wants to speak to Gordy, because that's about when he was, when Gordy was in jail in the 90s, when Farrell tried to have him stab Josh for some money. Right. Yeah. So, so there's there's actually more than one witness out there who could corroborate this story if they would only be willing to do so. I'd absolutely. also there's actually look, man, there's um two off the top of my head. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Gordon's sister could cooperate if she chose to. Right. Um, what I understand is that Gordon's brother was approached about it. Right. And. After he was approached, they come. They they came with some half cock story, trying to whatever, trying to duck and dodge again, right? Because maybe maybe they're afraid. You know, maybe maybe the Evans family is afraid of Bill. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. There's a lot of people that are afraid in Scott County, so I don't know what's going on. But here's the thing: like I, one of the things that I put out there when I'm talking to when I'm trying to communicate with them, I just want Gordon to talk. It's like, look, man, I was known as the guy in there that if I ever did lose my shit, that would probably be a very bad thing for people because I was extremely strong in prison, very powerful. But I was never known as the guy that was chaotic and beating people up and causing people to be afraid. And I'm not trying to be that now. But maybe Gordon was under the impression that Josh is really soft-spoken in general because i was soft-spoken in there 
I mean, he's he's finding out right now because I'm pretty sure this interview is going to get back to him and the book's going to get back to him. That ain't me, Gordon, and it ain't never been me. That's never been me. That's me exercising wisdom in hell so I can get out of hell. One, one more thing about this topic. The public's getting to know about this through the through the book and now later through this this podcast. But as you as you've stated earlier, you have given authorities plenty of time to research this and investigate this. Mm-hmm. And so from your standpoint, it's just it's time. It's time for people to know this. So um, can you tell a little bit about the fact that you have given this information over, you know, wh- where your mindset is, is as far as releasing this to the public? Right. I'm a man of my word. And sometimes I'll promise big things. Right. But I do my best to come through when I can. And most of the time I come through. And I told Amanda Ash, Don Cobb, and Missouri Attorney General Kevin Zellner, I told all three of them. And I told you this too, Bob. I've told everybody this. I can't be asked to sit on this forever. I told Kevin Zellner. I contacted him, sent him a copy of it. He came to visit me, visit with me in the courthouse of, uh, in Boone County. Uh, on the third or fourth floor. So I brought a recorder. <laughs> I said, well, I appreciate that, but I still wouldn't. I got myself a little handheld recorder. And I walked into the meeting. I set it down right in front of him. I didn't hide it. He had his investigator with him. I pushed record. I showed it to him. I set it right, right in front of him. I said, pardon. It was basically like something along the lines of, pardon me if you, you understand, right? I got to come in here prepared. And they understood. And The reason why they came, they told me, was because of what I sent them regarding Gordon Evans. And they, Zellner's question to me was, um, are you afraid for your life? I'm not paying lip service when I say this. This isn't something I'm saying as a a pound my chest moment, Bob, you know this. I fear no man, period. I, I don't understand fear. That's me. Right. So that's not me pounding my chest. That's that's how I am enjoying life. Something along the path of my life. And I'll leave you know the listeners to figure out what that was. Um, removed fear from me. Through trauma, through struggle, through 365 days, a year of my life of eating with playing handball with, lifting weights with, sleeping in the same cell with, being unconscious in the same cell with convicted killers. So when Kevin Zellner asked me, are you afraid for your life? I responded to him and I told him, maybe I should be um, if I were normal. Maybe I should be afraid, but no, man, I'm not. I ain't worried about these dudes. You know, if they come at me, that's going to be bad news for them. I'm not worried about them, right? But maybe I should be. So he took that as if it's not important. He took that as if it means, oh, we don't got to look into this now. When I made it clear to him that Gordon Evans is in prison, he was in prison at this point, separated from 
everybody he knew separated from access. He didn't, Bill Farrell had no access to him. Uh, his brother had limited access. His sister had limited access. And he was isolated in prison. And I, and I made it clear to him. I made it clear to Prosecutor Amanda Ash. I, 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 made, it, I made it clear to everybody I spoke to that they should go speak to Gordon before he gets out so that it provides him with cover. Like I was, I was even thinking about Gordon in this situation. Like no one's gonna see you guys coming and going. No one's gonna think he's snitching or anything. If you go and you visit him face to face, have a conversation with him. Maybe he denies everything, but at least you've had that conversation. Look into his phone records, look, whatever you gotta do, but have that conversation with the man, investigate it. Cause we're talking about what I'm being, what, what I was told is that an elected law enforcement officer attempted to put a contract hit on my life. And as the victim in this alleged incident, what I need you to do, what I want you to do is to go question the alleged hitman who chose not to hit me about the sheriff who he alleges attempted to hire him for a thousand dollars. And a thousand dollars in in the Missouri Department of Corrections—that's a lot of canteen, man. It's a lot of commissary. But they never even went and questioned Gordon. They never even investigated, looked into it. I was told, um, a prosecutor Amanda Ash told me um, over a phone conversation that uh, she said, "Well, because I, I told her, I said, why has nobody witten?" I asked her, why has nobody went and questioned Gordon yet? I haven't been told anybody's done anything. She said, well, they haven't because we thought you were okay because you're not afraid. I said, no, that's not what I meant to communicate. That's not what's happening here. I need him to go investigate, go question the man. He ends up getting out and they don't. It's like like accountability doesn't matter. Yeah, it's like accountability doesn't matter. And, And look, I do. I believe that Amanda tried to get people to do that part of their job, yes, you have to remember that Amanda Ash took the admirable step of incorporating the Highway Patrol and the Missouri Attorney General's office into this. She, It wasn't her sole responsibility to do their job for them when she had asked them to get involved to help her do her job, right? I was also told by Amanda that I would be contacted and called um, she told me this several times that she spoke to the representative that was involved now in the investigation with the highway, Missouri Highway Patrol. He never called me one time. I never got contacted one time. Alex, I don't know if Amanda Ash or Kevin Zellner ever gave the person in charge of it with the, with the Missouri Highway Patrol a copy of the, um, the statement. I don't know. But well, here's what I do know, right? Look, man, I was told that a law enforcement officer who has proven to be nefarious in my life in evil and in treacherous ways attempted to have my life extinguished in prison. And I couldn't get one of three prosecutors to go into the prison and question the man. I couldn't get Kevin Zellner's investigator who's sitting in the room when I'm talking to Kevin Zellner about this. To go and visit the man? No, what I get is Kevin Zellner and his investigators sitting in the room with me pretending like they're in control of this conversation. And Bob, you know how I feel about that. 
I know that people think I'm uh, maybe I, they can think a certain way about me. Look, man, when I when I whenever I'm having a conversation with anybody about this, I run that show. I don't try to do other people's job for them, right? But the only reason I'm involved in the conversation is because I choose to be. So because I'm choosing to be in that conversation, I'm in control of the conversation. I could walk out the room any time I choose. I can close this computer and end this interview anytime I choose. I can choose to never talk about this ever again. So whenever I am participating, I expect some respect to be returned. The respect I'm given, give it back. If you're not gonna give it, then the tone's gonna change quick. And as you know, um, at one point in time, I turned and I said to, the invest to his investigator, I said, why are you here? And he said, well, I'm just here, you know, observing. I said, no, man, you're watching me, aren't you? He nodded his head, yes. I said, I don't know why you're watching me. You need to be paying attention to what the information in the case is. And then Kevin Zellner, at one point in time, looked at me and said, he asked me to be patient with his involvement in the case because he, he was using sports analogies that he just got in the game, right? At that point, he had just gotten in the game. This was a year ago. He's no longer just getting in the game. You know, he's like, like, you know, if somebody was to get killed outside today, you know, right, we, we would need time, right? Because that just happened. I said, well, Michelle Lawless didn't just get killed today. This was going on 30 years ago during the conversation. And I said, with all due respect, man, you're just getting in the game. I'm a seasoned vet. I've been doing this for a long time. And I and I pointed out, I pointed out you to him, Bob. I was like, Bob Miller's got all this information. You know, he's willing to talk to you. And he, I, and then, and then he 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 said that, well, for right now, he he basically tried to tell me that everybody except him was a suspect, and he needed time to work through that. Well, you, you got to know that when he says everybody except him is a suspect, I'm obliged to remind him, not me. Right. Everybody <clears throat> except me. And he goes, no, no, everybody except me. I said, everybody except me. It better be everybody except me. You need to leave me out of it. And I let him know I respect his position as the prosecutor. I'm not trying to do his job for him. I told him I don't even want him to tell me the things that he's doing because I don't want to interfere with the investigation. But I do need the occasional update. Just let me know there's progress. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know anything else, man. But you can be you can you can let me know there's progress. And I even said to him, and it would probably be a good idea to meet with the Lawless family. They deserve this, too. To my knowledge, it's been over a year. To my knowledge, I mean, I've never been told that he's met with the Lawless family. To my knowledge, the Lawless family has only had one meeting with a prosecutor. And that was Amanda Ash when she originally announced that she was going to reopen the case. That's it. That, I mean, maybe Don has met with them, but I haven't been told. And I, you know, I'm. But, Zell, but Zellner ne has never circled back around with you, Hat. Has he? Zellner's never circled back around with me. He's never given me an update. He's never told me about progress. I told him sitting in that room. I said, look, man, I understand you need time to get caught up, right? And I said something about six months. I said, you know, matter of fact, if a year from now, a year, that's enough time. I said, if a year from now, 
you haven't done anything, there's no progress. I said, we're going to have a problem, man. He said, well, you know, you get, we got all kinds of other things. I said, I don't really care about all that. I don't care. We're talking about a girl who's been murdered for 30 years, all going on 30 years now. If a year from now you're not doing anything, there's going to be a problem, man. And that problem was I'm going to start being outspoken about their clear disinterest and deliberate indifference to justice for a 19-year-old college nursing student who was shot in the face. She saw who killed her. The first shot was in her face. I don't know how I need to say this to get people to really wrap their head around that. She wasn't hit, she wasn't hit and sideswiped, right? She wasn't shot in the back and didn't see it coming and was living a peaceful, enjoyable life when this happened. All the evidence shows is that somehow her attackers got her out of her car. She ran or she was dragged or whatever. There's blood out in the grass outside of her car. There's blood on the guardrail. There's a pool of blood in front of her car. She somehow gets in her car after all that hell. Either she's fighting to get away or she was carried or drugged there or whatever by her killers. It's not just me. Multiple people believe it was more than one killer, right? So multiple killers put maybe put her in her car, but she then sat up there because there's evidence that suggests she was sitting up and she was looking at her killer when they shot her in the face. And I can't get weak. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm flustered because I can't, I can't wrap my head around why it is so difficult for officers of the court, for the guardians of justice in this country to put their pride, their ego, their preferences to the side and, and, and to set aside however they might think about me and do what they got to do to get justice for this girl. Her name's Michelle Lawless. And we know where she went to school. She went to Southeast Missouri State University. We know what she was studying. She was a nursing student. We know she attended church. We know she studied martial arts. Well, we don't know if anybody actually gives a shit about her in a prosecutor's office or in a law enforcement office because we haven't seen it. What we've seen is Amanda Ash attempt to do something very good. And for that, Amanda has demonstrated giving a shit. And we appreciate that. But by and large, we got 30 years of inactivity, nothing getting done, <clears throat> charges not being filed. Meanwhile, we've got people out there. We've got a guy that has claimed, and he testified in my 2008 hearing, Ron Burton, has said that he saw the words come out of Mark Abbott's mouth that he killed Michelle Lawless. And we got DNA doctors in the Netherlands claiming that they've recommended charges because they've gotten touch DNA. I'm sorry um, if I get worked up, Bob. I yeah, well, no, what I we've talk talked about, about off the up. air is is that no one has no one has made Michelle Lawless a top priority. Which is why I do, which is why I'm yeah. sorry if people think I get I get worked up, if I get passionate, man. 
But if I'm not screaming and yelling from the rooftops, you want to tell me where we're at with this case right now, Bob? And what we're dealing with is a young woman who was murdered on the side of a highway. So why don't we get off of our soapboxes, get off of the hate Joss train, get off of the prioritize everything but this girl train and start prioritizing Michelle Lawless. As I'm sitting here recording this right now, it's June 13th, 2023. On this date in 1994, a jury heard the first day's testimony in the trial that would send Josh Keyser to prison for the murder of Michelle Lawless. On this date in 1994, the state had not presented any motive, and it didn't have any. And it had not presented any evidence that Josh even knew the victim. On this date in 1994, Josh knew he had alibis. He knew he was innocent. He believed he would win. He didn't know that Chantel Kreider was waiting in the wings. He didn't know that Mark Abbott had earlier identified Ray Ring, not him, as the person in the white car. He didn't know that Mark Abbott, the twin who picked him out of a lineup, was once named as a suspect. He didn't know what was happening behind the scenes. Now in his book, and on this episode, these 29 years later, we have another dark moment to add to the story. Josh has told us the sheriff responsible for putting him away allegedly tried to arrange for him to be stabbed in prison. This is a good time to rewind the clock and review what happened. Let's go back to the 1970s. Before Bill Farrell became a sheriff, back when he was working as an investigator for the sheriff's office, Farrell told a drug dealer that I talked to that the dealer needed to move outside the city limits of Sykeston. This same source, who was directly involved in moving large quantities of drugs for the Briggs family, told me Farrell provided interference for him to land airplanes at a small nearby landing strip so he could unload big drug shipments just across the county line. This case involved the judge's family, busted in 1984, for a 10-state cocaine distribution ring. It was a huge story, grabbing front-page headlines in newspapers in Kansas City and St. Louis. Farrell told the media at the time he brought in the feds to help handle the drug problem. Yet a source, who was an early witness in the Briggs investigation, told me that the DEA agent who approached him told him not to share a word about the investigation to the sheriff. That means in the 1980s, the DEA did not trust the local sheriff. They did not want him to know they were conducting a major drug ring probe into one of Farrell's political allies in Farrell's county. Now we move into the 1990s. The SEMO Drug Task Force is started with Bill Farrell, one of the key founding members. Farrell served for decades as the treasurer and secretary of the task force. One of the first operations conducted by the task force was a huge meth bust of the Farrell's motorcycle gang. The bust was said to have sucked about half the supply out of the region. Demand for the drug was rising. Supply was limited. Opportunity presented itself for anyone who could establish supply lines and fill the void. 
Michelle Lawless was murdered on November 8, 1992. What happened that afternoon when Tom Beardsley showed up to re-interview Mark Abbott? Beardsley told me Bill Farrell was meeting alone with Mark Abbott. What happened when Beardsley voiced suspicion in Mark Abbott? Beardsley was taken off the case. What happened a few days later when Mark Abbott told a Scott City police officer that he saw Ray Ring at the payphone? Bill interviewed Ray Ring for about 30 minutes. Then, along with his deputy Brenda Shivitz, hid the original report from Josh's attorneys, which was illegal. What happened when Josh's attorneys at the original trial asked for the grand jury minutes? Well, the minutes had been lost. What happened on the fourth day of the trial? A surprise witness came forward. Michelle's friend, who was married to a man with ties to Kevin and Mark Abbott's meth ring. Who was Chantel sequestered with alone before she testified? Bill Farrell. What happened when the Cape Girardeau County Jail snitches began to recant their stories before Josh went to trial? So-called witnesses from Scott County Jail came forward to Bill Farrell, who asked for first-degree murder charges to be dropped for one of those witnesses, Bill Farrell. It was the first such request that he ever made, according to the prosecutor at the time. That murderer, now out of prison, along with another inmate, both made statements that they said that they were pressured by Bill Farrell to give false testimony. By the time Josh Kieser was arrested, in the spring of 1993, major methamphetamine pipelines were being set up and used to bring large quantities of meth back from California. In the early fall of 1994, just four months after Josh was convicted, the federal DEA launched an investigation called Operation Speed Bump. Kevin Williams was a major player and began snitching on his suppliers after getting caught with a weapon and drugs in nearby Cape Girardeau. After a few years of investigation, some 20 co-conspirators drew felony drug charges. At the time, this was called one of the biggest drug busts in the history of Southeast Missouri. A trial was held against one of the co-conspirators, the only one who didn't plead guilty. The investigative documents I have list more than 100 names of people in and around Scott County who were dealing or using methamphetamine. The prosecution didn't list a single witness from the Scott County Sheriff's Office for the Operation Speed Bump trial. Kevin Williams, Mark Abbott, Matt Abbott, Ray Ring, and Chantel Kreider were all names contained in my Speed Bump investigative documents and all names involved in the wrongful conviction of Josh Kieser. Williams and both Abbott twins served prison time. Williams and Matt Abbott both got out before Josh did. I first learned of Michelle's murder in 2007 when reporter Bridget DeCosmo came into my office and told me about Walter reopening the case. We learned there was no evidence against Josh. We learned that Mark Abbott and Kevin Williams were emerging as suspects. In 2009, Josh was exonerated, finally. And some eight years after that, former reporter Mark Bliss and I did some reporting. We just wanted to know more about the investigation and where it was headed. That's when we learned that former Sheriff Bill Farrell had secretly shared information about the case with Kevin Williams. 
We learn that Farrell and Williams were meeting secretly. We learn that Farrell told Williams not to worry. They didn't have anything on him. I asked myself at the time, why under any circumstances would it be okay or even consider normal for this to happen? There is no good reason for this. Rick Walter, the sheriff who reopened the case, told us Kevin Williams told him that Bill Farrell let him know the case was reopened and that he was a top suspect. Walter didn't even know Williams was a suspect at the time. Farrell denied all this when Mark Bliss got a hold of him. Farrell said as far as he knew, Kevin Williams had turned his life around, and he said, I've got nothing bad to say about Kevin Williams. Kevin Williams, the guy who brought pounds of methamphetamine into Farrell's county. The man about whom Farrell had nothing bad to say was on a first-name basis with the Mexican Mafia drug dealers who went by names like Coches, or simply the Indian. A lot of that meth that rushed back into southeast Missouri trickled down to teenagers still in high school or working part-time jobs in popular restaurants. Walter didn't know Williams was a suspect back when he reopened the case in 2006, but Farrell did. We know that Farrell knew Williams was a suspect because at least three people, and maybe more, came to him, saying either Mark Abbott or Kevin Williams murdered Michelle, and that they had the wrong man in prison for that murder. It was around that time in the mid-2000s that Josh's private investigator, his attorneys, and Walter began unlocking some secrets. In the depositions leading up to Keezer's exoneration, Mark Abbott and Kevin Williams testified that Bill Farrell was calling Williams regularly as Walter was investigating the case. Again, Mark Abbott testified that Kevin Williams was calling the sheriff regularly about this case. Then there's the private investigator statement from Taco Mancilla stating that Bill Farrell came around asking him about the gun along with Mark Abbott's father, Larry Abbott. And now we have this. Josh Keezer, while in prison, says an inmate, who I can confirm was in Scott County Jail not long after Keezer's trial, told Josh that Farrell offered him money to stab Josh. Josh collected a signed statement from this prison mate, a document that I've seen. Josh has a name, which he has now made public. He has a date when the statement was made. He's taken his information to the authorities. Josh is willing to give a deposition. Others could too if they chose to do so. But as I've run into time and time again, it doesn't appear these witnesses are comfortable telling the information they know. Now I would ask you some serious questions. Think of everything I've listed here, all this context, 40 plus years of context. Does the Attorney General's office know this context? Does the Missouri Highway Patrol? Does the current prosecutor? Does the FBI? Not unless they've dug into files from 40 years ago like I have. Not unless they've talked to former drug dealers. Not unless they've read the deposition of Josh's trial. Do they even have access to those? The sad truth is this. Law enforcement won't know the context to this case unless or until they make Michelle Lawless and Josh Keezer a priority. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files.
The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is written and hosted by yours truly, Bob Miller. Music by Tyler Grafe. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.